I've never had a call like this in my life. And welcome back to Bigfoot on Trial, the show that utilizes forensic science and the different disciplines within crime scene investigations to study evidence, sightings, and eyewitness testimony concerning Bigfoot. I'm your host, David Zagan. If you have any sightings, any evidence, or anything you just want to discuss in general, hopefully about Bigfoot, please go to BigfootForensics.com, leave your message, or hit me up at evidence at BigfootForensics.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Bigfoot on Trial. Um, I would like to first apologize to everybody for it taking so long for me to come back and make another episode. I'm not going to make excuses, but I will tell you that it has been uh, it has been pretty trying. Okay, um, basically, uh, don't forget I am an active crime scene investigator a latent fingerprint examiner and polygrapher. I've been kind of busy. I did some private work on the side as well. Been doing a lot of reading. Basically, uh, I felt guilty every time I read something and went, oh crap, that could be in a show, right? Uh, and, and we'll be getting into that a little bit later. So um, let's address Tim. I originally said Tim couldn't come back on the show. I told him that, right? That prompted all the calls and the fake calls, and he ended up making a name for himself, all right? Uh, you know, only done three shows, and it turns out he's pretty freaking popular. In the beginning, he was frustrating, and then I saw the humor. So um, I promised his mother, who called in for him, that he could come back, but this time it was going to be like little cameo guest, uh, guest appearances type of thing, where he gets 30 seconds to give me his opinion on the topic, and then after 30 seconds, he's gone. I don't care what he's talking about. All right. It seems fair. He gets to be on like every other show or something like that or whenever. Anyway, he's not totally gone, people. So just know that he will be coming back and making guest appearances. Unfortunately, he won't be on this show. Um, we have a lot to get to. That way we can get to the other fun episodes I have lined up. So basically we started with eyewitness testimony and then we moved into securing the scene and now the collecting of evidence. And we need to go ahead and get that out of the way so we could just move on to fun random topics and things like that. Before I get started, I had talked to a friend of mine about a bunch of the casts that I see online. And uh, remember I'm a certified latent print examiner. And I've been scouring the internet looking for uh, Bigfoot impressions that may have some dermal ridges in them. I found a reference to, a, you know, a couple. Apparently there aren't that many. Anyway, so what the deal is with that is I reached out to somebody, talked to them briefly. They referred me to, turns out, a book I already had that I hadn't read. So I took the time to read it. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're an idiot. 
you've had this information in front of you the whole time and now, right? But it did give me some other things to think about, which I'll be coming up with some tests in my own backyard because it turns out that uh, in the book entitled Sasquatch Legend Meets Science by Dr. Meldrum, everybody knows who that is, chapter 14, line upon line, dermatoglyphics. Awesome chapter, right in my wheelhouse. I should have read it a long time ago. Um, so what happens is I came across this report online by uh, an investigator, a latent print examiner named Chilcut. And it, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I hope it is. Uh, it's spelled C-H-I-L-C-U-T-T. And I came across this report where it was talking about basically confirming that there were dermal ridges that were primate or of some type of primate or unknown origin, but no matter what, they weren't human within some of the Bigfoot casts. But then I couldn't click on the pictures and I couldn't enlarge them, look at them myself. And, and you know, I'm not gonna lie, it was irritating. I thought I finally found a, an actual report, but I wasn't able to actually see any of the pictures that went along with some of the words. And even then some of the, it was an article, not, e not even a paper. And I was wondering if all this research was done, where are the research notes, where the, where's the paper, stuff like that. I never really took into consideration um, how some of these anthropologists and, you know, field biologists and even now latent print examiners, how it would affect them in their field professionally should they, you know, put their voice out there and put it in a, in a paper. Luckily, there are people like Dr. Meldrum who don't really, who don't care about that. And there's quite a few scientists out there that don't care about that. And uh, honestly, you should go and read some of the papers. I'm about halfway through of my, through the papers that are that are on the Relict Hominoid Inquiries webpage. Um, and, and, and you know, Dr. Meldrum's website. Hopefully, I got that right. Um, anyway, I'm, it's very surprising that we have all these Bigfoot researchers out there who never mention or even talk about Dr. Meldrum's work or his, uh, or you know, the whole group of scientists that are actually writing real research on this. Anyway, back to the book, chapter 14. Learned a lot. Um, it is quite fascinating. And one of the reasons that I found... Um, which I wish I would have read a long time ago, and I know I've mentioned that before. But Dr. Meldrum mentions in this chapter, um, and I, I don't know if it's pronounced Lois. I should have looked it up before I came on here. It's spelled L-O-E-S-S. -S. Uh, it's Lois or Lois or... Okay, here's the definition of Lois or Lois, and I will get the pronunciation right at some point. I'm in chapter 14 now, taking a look at that section. Um... It says, in some places in Western North America, the soil contains large amounts of loss. <laughs> Screw that. I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> okay, according to the Google pronunciation, it's pronounced Lois, like Lois Lane, but it's L-O-E-S-S. -S. Okay, so back to the definition of it. 
Um, all right. So it says, in some places in Western North America, the soil contains large amounts of loess, a type of calcareous silt. Loess is a windblown dust derived from rocks pulverized by the grinding actions of advancing glaciers during the Ice Age. It has the consistency of talcum powder. There are particularly significant deposits of loess in eastern Washington and southern Idaho. Another source of fine soil elements are the volcanoes in the Cascade Mountain Range. Deposits of fine volcanic ash or tephra have been recorded throughout the west and in places are exposed in road cuts or deposited as silt along stream beds. All right, so extremely fine dust. So what happens basically in the book when we're talking about if there were any friction ridge impressions uh, in the Northwest where honestly, let's talk about that. That's predominantly where most of the Bigfoot sightings are, right? So if there are these fine little dermal ridges and what happens to be the right soil, then this loess can blow in and cover those. And in fact, Dr. Meldrum talks about doing a, uh, his own little experiment where he creates impressions. And it was only a matter of hours sometimes before these impressions had that Lois and they're affecting the details. So what I want to know, honestly, is uh, here in Georgia where there's clay, because um, when I go out to, um, well, I used to go out to a hunting property with my, my friend, and go camping and scouting and looking around. I, I was fascinated to find all the different animal tracks on some of the dirt roads that we had. And you have to remember some of the dirt roads here, um, they're mostly clay. Remember those red dirt roads? That's that red clay. And those impressions stick for a long time. What we noticed is we could actually see that, hey, there's a nice impression. And oh my goodness, you know what? It hasn't rained in like two weeks, but that turkey impression still looks like it was made yesterday. Now, some of it, you know, you have to remember, um, and this is what I would like to see with dermal ridges, is once those dermal ridges, if you could see them in the wet clay, how long does it take before that clay starts to dry and then start to shrink and crack and do all those things that clay does when it dries? How does that affect the uh, the dermal ridges? Which is something I think I'm gonna have to play around with since Dr. Meldrum did it in his area. I'm thinking I'm gonna have to try it here so we can see. All right, so back to Chilcut. You need to go and check out Chilcut's work. Um, or really, I don't even know if you can find it anywhere else other than Dr. Meldrum's book. But let me tell you something about this man. I had a predetermined, unfortunately, it was a, a, a bad, outlook because it didn't look very professional right and in this and i should have taken it with a grain of salt i'm finding it on the internet it could be changed everything could be changed oh man but anyway it turns out that this man is a latent fingerprint examiner who had a passion for anything friction ridge right um in fact he traveled to different zoos and got friction ridge impressions from I gosh, multiple zoos, multiple, multiple types of primates. He had a crap ton of friction ridge uh, impressions, like inked impressions, like exemplars, beautiful exemplars from all these different types of primates. So if anyone was going to be looking at uh, any dermal ridges found in a Bigfoot cast, 
this is the man that should have done it, right? Dr. Meldrum had his guy. As much as I wanted to join in and, and be a part of this, this is the guy. I don't know if he's continuing the research. I'm going to be reaching out shortly to see if I can at least get some copies of some of those impressions. Now, he worked hard. I don't, I don't know. I mean, if I worked that hard, I don't know if I'd want to share it. But I'm hoping in the, intre- in the interest of uh, pushing this forward and trying to just learn more about it, I'm hoping he will. I'm hoping you will. But the entire book is a must read. But that particular section spoke to me. And when I realized that someone out there with a passion for prints like I do, I actually went through the trouble. You know, I've joked about trying to get impressions from primates at the zoo. Uh, my partner says I should go do it, uh, my, my partner at the lab. And uh, I just never have. And then I look at I look up this guy and I find out, oh my gosh, this guy went out and did so much work. And I'm hoping he'll pass it on because if nothing else, I just like to see what they look like. I mean, you can't hardly find any of that online. You can find something here and there, but with the amount of data that he's collected, it is most invaluable. And I highly, highly suggest if you're looking at uh, bringing science and Bigfoot together, checking out this book, I'm here to tell you it's really good. And you're welcome, Dr. Meldrum, um, but you're the one who wrote the book and did all the work, and it's super awesome. But So that was an easy plug, even though you didn't ask me to do that. Okay, so let's move on. We're talking about documenting and collecting the evidence that we found in the woods. So let's start with photography. All right, that's been a big pet peeve of mine, watching some of these people do the, uh, the photography throwing things down on the ground and calling it a scale. Let's be realistic. If it doesn't have numbers on it, it's not a scale. It needs to to be done properly. So let's hit some of the basics. First, before you go investigating and taking pictures, you should know your camera. Learn your equipment before you go into the field. Okay? So what you don't want to have happen is you don't want to be out in the middle of the night fumbling around in the dark trying to figure out what knob does what and things like that. Uh, Not only is it embarrassing, but if you're by yourself, I guess it doesn't matter. Um, But if you are fumbling around, you could miss an opportunity, especially if something were to, I don't know, show up in person, right? You don't need to be trying to remember how to work your camera. Um, Also, you need to know where your controls are. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, you know, basically learn your camera from an operational aspect. You know, where's the menu setting for this? What does this knob do? What does that knob do? And how does it help you? You also need to learn the limitations of your camera. Uh, just because it takes great pictures during the day doesn't mean it takes great pictures at night. So if it doesn't take great pictures at night, and you should know this by practicing, then you need to have the proper lights with you, right? Whether it be a flashlight or a floodlight or something like that, headlamp, whatever brings you extra light. Don't forget to learn how to work your white balance. Uh, I know that can be changed post-processing, but it makes it a lot easier to get it on the front end. Um, Also, uh, learn your camera, you know, day and night. Learn how to use it. Um, Learn how to control depth of field. This is really important because if you don't learn how to control your depth of field, and if you don't know what that is, very simply put, if I had a row of 15 traffic cones in a row and they're going away from me, 
So basically I'm seeing the larger traffic cone turn into smaller traffic cones and it's going away from me. Your depth of field, whether the first cone you take a picture of is clear and the rest slowly progress into a blurred mess versus all of them being in focus. That's your depth of field, right? So if you have it set on a very limited depth of field, say like your f-stop of like 5.6 or even into your threes or twos and you happen to be off plane or you have a very deep impression uh, you're going to miss a lot of information so learn how to use your depth of field for the right lighting conditions also your film speed can affect uh, the quality of your pictures right grainy versus not grainy <laughs> All right, so look that up, learn about it, because we're not going to be doing a photography show, okay? All right, so photographing impressions. This is what I want to see, and this is what everybody should want to see. The plane of your lens or your camera should be parallel to the surface, okay? There should be an actual scale next to it. You'll also want some oblique lighting, that's side lighting, to help bring up the shadows to show the impressions more... Uh, It'll create more detail. All right, so you want to do it with and without. Um, you want it from different angles. And then for sure, you want to fill the frame with that impression and it needs to be parallel and of good quality because people like me are going to want to zoom in and we're going to want to see the movement inside that, uh, inside that pattern. We're going to look for friction ridge patterns. We're going to look for movement. Um, there's so many more details other than there were toes mid-tarsal break and a heel and look how long it is, right? There's a lot more information that people want to look at. Um, also, we want to, once you've documented that, you're going to want to take overalls. Um, in crime scene, we do overalls, mids, and close-ups, right? So the overall basically is a picture of the entire scene, like a 360 degree area. Now, if you're going to be in the woods, you're going to want to mark the area somehow or mark where the impression is to give people an idea so they could put it into context where this impression was located. And then you're going to want to get a little closer and kind of lead up to it. And then that's when you're going to do your close-ups next. Remember, you need to use markers out in the woods. That way you can put it into context and maybe even a directionality of where you think the impression was headed. That way you can get more information other than you had an impression discovered, but you also had a, uh, you know, directionality. Where was this creature moving toward at what time of year, uh, you know, temperature, weather conditions, soil conditions, all those kinds of things. Right. Uh, so that's just the, the photography portion. And to be honest with you, photography for my field, if it's a good impression, that's usually what we stick with. Uh, casting stuff is now really a souvenir. Uh, well, for, for mine, unless, unless I have a really, really great impression that I can send off to a footwear examiner, in which case I will take the time to do that, but not on every impression. Okay, so if you were going to do casting or try to take three a three-dimensional mold or what have you from this print, how would you do it? Well, there's several different ways. First, the old school way of plaster of Paris. That's nothing more than two parts plaster to one part water. Um, and I for, honestly, I forgot how much is a regular footprint. 
But if you go to something, you know, the what we're using now, no one's using plaster of Paris anymore. We're using dental stone and different types of dental stone. Um, and the recipe for dental stone is 12 ounces of water to two pounds of dental stone. It's sold by the pounds, typically by 25 pounds, uh, sometimes by two pounds. It just happens to be that the two pound uh, marker is an adequate amount for a normal uh, human footwear impression. Uh, sorry, for a human footwear impression. So keep that in mind, two pounds for a human, who knows how much for a deeper impression or you know, for a <laughs> something much larger. Um, but there are also other ways besides casting that you can do this. And keep in mind when I mentioned plaster of Paris dental stone, those are the, the, the most typical ways. But dental stone seems to be the biggest one. A lot of people are getting into these handheld scanners now. And there's two major ones. Uh, the recent one that I just discovered, and that's the one I'm going to be talking about the most, RevoPoint3D.com. That's R-E-V-O. P-O-I-N-T, and then the number three, D.com. So on their website, they have what's called their, their mini. It's a mini 3D scanner. It's handheld. And it actually comes in, it scans at a whopping 0.02 millimeters. It's insane. It's using a new blue light scanning technology. It's only $800. Uh, you can buy add-ons and stuff like that. So what's interesting is this hasn't been out too long. Um, but it's the one that I want and I've about convinced my wife to let me get one so she could like scan stuff and make jewelry because <laughs> it's really good for making jewelry as well. Uh, the other one, which is actually more, almost every other one's like thousands and thousands of dollars, right? Because they came out first, they've been around. The most prevalent one I've seen, I even saw it on uh, the show Expedition Bigfoot, is the EinScan, one of the EinScan Pro Scanners. Um, they're very expensive in comparison to the Revo Point Mini. Uh, we're talking like $4,000 plus with about the same or higher uh, accuracy. I'm sorry, same or lower accuracy. That was stupid. And something else I thought of when I was looking at all these things and thinking about casting, um, I happened to have a case where I was uh, about to do a mold and they have uh, like the the dental bite registration molds, you know, the stuff they, they use to they put in your mouth and you bite down and they use it as a mold to like make uh, mouth guards and things like that. It's called polyvinyl siloxane. If you just like Google dental bite registration mold, um, it comes in different colors, even different flavors, um, different drying speeds. So what's interesting is in the crime scene field, we have something called Accutrans that we use for like getting tool marks, making molds of tool marks that were like, you know, like if someone broke into a house and they were using uh, some type of pry bar or something, they left a, an interesting mark or something. We can actually make a mold of it so we could do some accurate measurements of it, you know, back at the lab and stuff like that. Turns out it's the exact same stuff as the the dental bite registration stuff uh, polyvinyl siloxane it's written right on the side um, so i bought a bunch of this stuff when i was at the national forensic academy and i was testing how uh how detailed it could get so i had all these different company names and i basically put fingerprints up on the mirror just with sebaceous oil fingerprints up on the mirror um, and i just put the stuff right over top um, 
And believe it or not, I was able, after it dries, it usually dries from like five to seven minutes or something like that, sometimes quicker depending on temperature. Um, sometimes three to four at 70 degrees, I think that's what it was. But I, I pulled it off and I was actually able with oblique lighting, remember side lighting with a flashlight, able to see the fingerprints that were on the mirror. And this was with no processing. So it makes me wonder if I find something out in the field. Now, mind you, this stuff can be expensive. It's like $24 for like two tubes of this stuff. So you would actually have to warm it up and make it a little runnier to fill in. But that would, uh, that would be something that I think, because uh, a friend of mine, he actually did a whole project and he got uh, published he got published with uh, a study he did on casting uh, bloodstain patterns with uh, with AccuTrans versus Microsil. Microsil was a an older version that's not as good and not as stable. Uh, but um, he actually was able to cast that. I mean, I, it's no surprise. It's if it's three dimensional and it's raised up off a surface, then you could get an impression of it. But I was just wondering. Uh, if anyone decides to go and do that and they have quite a bit of money and want to try to fill up a footprint with that stuff, that'd be awesome. You basically get a giant rubber, uh, it's almost like a silicone impression. I'd also like to see that done too. Someone fill an impression with silicone and see what happens. Uh, basically, use your imagination, go out and get those. Just remember when you're pouring in the plaster, you're pouring in the dental stone or whatever you're pouring in, don't pour it into the impression first pour it on the outside and let it slowly fill in on its own. You don't want to disturb those impressions as much as you can. So moving on, collecting trace and DNA. All right. So what's trace evidence? It's not the same thing as DNA. In my world, trace is hairs, fibers, gunshot residue, uh, glass fragments, small particulates, except particulates, etc. How do we collect it? Trace lifts. Basically, it's a special kind of tape that uh, we just, it looks like masking tape. We just kind of affix it to something and then pull it off and stick it to this special backing card. And whenever I say special tape, special backing card is because when we submit this item, this finished product to like the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, they'll submerge it into a solution and those two things will separate and you'll be able to get the particulates out, All right? Or you could just, if it's clear, if it's a clear backing card, you can just kind of look on the back and see if it's something that you want to get. Or you can use sterilized bags, plastic bags with sterilized tweezers. All right, I say all this because you can look up and learn how to sterilize something or you can buy everything sterilized. And uh, at the end, I'll tell you where you can get some of this stuff. DNA collecting, super, super easy. I mean, super, super easy. Same thing, sterilized, sterilized. You can buy sterilized uh, Q-tips and the little boxes we use. They're basically sterilized cotton swabs. And that's pretty much what we use. Been good enough for, for the ages. Um, so there is one thing I would like to address when we talk about contamination, especially when we're talking about trying to uh, prove Bigfoot's existence. We're out collecting DNA in the woods and I'm watching these shows and they're pulling rubber gloves out of their pockets. And then they're surprised when the DNA analysts come back and say uh, they think it was contaminated with human DNA. Well, no joke. It was in someone's pocket. All right. So one of the things we used 
or one of the methods, one of the methods that we use to try to uh, alleviate some of this is we pull out a pair of gloves out of the box. You can get sterilized gloves, yes, and we'll use those on certain types of scenes. But what we'll do is we're watching for where we're touching these gloves. And we'll try our best to put on these first pair of gloves by touching them mostly at the wrist and stuff like that, right? Or in the middle, if you, can, if you can't help it, you gotta touch it in the middle. You get those pair of gloves on, but what you don't ever do is touch the fingers because you're gonna use those clean fingers that you never touched anything with to grab a second pair out and now put those over the top. Now, we've done as much as we possibly can, right, to do to, to minimize. Or you could, after you have the gloves on, you could sterilize it with something that kills DNA, right? But you don't have that option too much in the field, so that's what we do. We use sterilized gloves, put on two pair, and try to put it on that way. And then we use sterilized tweezers. Pre-packaged, one-time use, throw it in the bag with the evidence that you collected. Um, and that's pretty much it. So where do you get these things? Well, from websites we actually order all of our stuff from, believe it or not. Um, yeah, just normal websites. Anybody can order. You don't have to be law enforcement. Uh, the first one, and let's be honest, the most expensive, but they have the most stuff, is Searchy. Searchy.com. S-I-R-C-H-I-E. I'm gonna have uh, I'm gonna have these listed on the website at BigfootForensics.com under the episode, so you don't have to worry about writing all this down. I'm just gonna mention them now. So you have Searchy, you have TriTech Forensics, Search Evident, Arrowhead Forensics, and that's pretty much what we're using. And sometimes the stuff that you wouldn't think of, we just get from from Amazon, things like that. Now for the photography stuff, what we like to do is we like to go to Adorama or B&H Photo and basically shop for what we think we want. And then we try to find it on Amazon or eBay or some other site, right? So, um, but they have, B&H Photo and Adorama have amazing things. Um, and if you just want to dream big, go to Foster and Freeman and check out their stuff. They're always doing some amazing research and have some of the best toys in the world, but you're going to pay for it. And trust me, our agency can't even afford it. So, uh, But they are leaders in the world, and it's pretty freaking awesome. So let's not forget that when we're collecting evidence, when we were, I mean, you know, I shouldn't have even gone through all the collecting first. What we should have done was go straight to uh after you have marked the scene and you know you need to map it so how do you map a scene in the middle of the woods all right so there are different methods and we've had to utilize this from time to time um, the first method is gps just to you know get you to the right location all right to find the general area all right once we're there and we've discovered that all of our where most of our evidence is what we typically do is we drive two pieces of rebar into the ground. And in, we usually do it just south of all the evidence. And what we do is we try to situate so the evidence is about in the middle of the rebar, but south of it. I mean, sorry, the evidence is north of the rebar, and but in the middle, if that makes any sense. I hope I'm being a little more clear. Maybe I should put a map on the on the website. 
So what we do then is we measure the known distance between the two rebar pieces, and then we take a measurement from each piece of rebar to each piece of evidence, and we document that. So that helps us triangulate. So what happens is, is if we ever need to come back out there and show someone exactly where we found this evidence, we can use the GPS location to get us in a general area. Then we can use our metal detectors to find the two pieces of rebar, which we also took GPS coordinates from and measured the distance between each piece. And then we can do the measurements from each piece of rebar out to where they connect so we can show where that piece of evidence was located. Um, how do you measure the distances? A simple laser distance meter or even a very long tape measure. We've done both. Uh, we also now use a 3D scanner from Faro Technologies, which is pretty awesome. We have the, the brand new one. Uh, Trimble and Leica, they also make them. We went with Faro. Um, we also have a drone that does aerial mapping, which is helpful. So especially, I mean, if I could get a drone with some LiDAR mapping technology, that would be amazing. But we don't have that. But those are different ways that you can map it. Uh, or if you don't even go through all of that, at least take the 360 degree, degree photos, put some markers out so, and take a GPS location. That way we, uh, you know, the researchers could get a feel for it. Because just taking a side photo of a footprint and saying I was out on this trail, uh, that's not really helping the research any. So hopefully uh, some of this has been helpful um, and not just long and boring listening to me talk. I swear, you know, the next one, we're going to have some fun. We're going to have weird animal sounds in the woods. Uh, what are the strangest things you've ever heard and some things that you should know while you're in the woods, right? That way we don't attribute every sound that we hear when walking through the woods as a potential Bigfoot. We need to know what's already out there, what kind of sounds they make, not only for uh, safety reasons, but also so we don't do the whole confirmation bias kind of thing. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. And just like I always end every show with a Bigfoot dad joke. All right, everybody, here it goes. How does Bigfoot tell time? With a Sasquatch. All right, everybody, until next time, thank you for listening. She said he was holding her baby the way a human would, but said that baby had a face only a mother could love. Ooh.